The woman whose story we read about in John chapter 4 must have come to that well hundreds of times. Each morning she would get up, she would wash, she would put on clothes, and then she would wait till the moment was right to go out to the well. She'd grab an empty bucket, perhaps, or a jar. She would travel that familiar road. She would draw what she could and then return home again. And week in and week out, the cycle was repeated. Rise, go, get, return, until she could do it in her sleep. Yet no matter how often she went to the well, she still left wishing that the satisfaction she drew from that place trickled down deeper and lasted longer and somehow quenched the thirst, the deep thirst that kept her coming back. I suspect that were we fully open with one another, many of us would have to admit that some of us have an experience something like this woman when we come here each Sunday. We go through our familiar paces to get here. You did it again this morning. You arose, you washed, you got dressed, you um, grabbed whatever you needed to, whether it was a family member or some, your Bible or something else, and you got into the car and you came out here and you came into the place and you went through the motions again. We arrive when we come to this place. We sit, we stand, we speak, we sing, we go home again almost on autopilot sometimes. And like that woman at the well, we may often leave feeling that the satisfaction that we drew from this place was not quite what we needed, that we wished it would trickle down deeper and that it would last longer and that it would somehow satiate this deep thirst that keeps us coming back. In this text from the Gospel of John, Jesus suggests that an encounter with him, with God himself, ought ought to satisfy our thirst. It ought to be like drinking from the cold, clean, clear, uh, streams of the living waters of heaven, as Jesus described them. It ought to be the kind of deep drink that satisfies you to the very core of your being and leaves you wiping your mouth with a deep, satisfied, (sighs) that's what it should be like to encounter Jesus when we come here to the well. But Jesus says that to drink from this well requires much more than just getting ourselves here. It, It requires more than going through the motions. Jesus says that the deep refreshment that we're seeking comes to those who truly worship. Only to those who open themselves up to him in worship. A time is coming and has now come, says Jesus, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for these are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. This morning, what I'd like to try and do is unpack with you a little bit these words of Jesus. Think about what they have to do with the purpose of our gathering here, maybe especially as we prepare to come today to the table of our Lord. 
Some of you may know that the Hebrew word for worship comes from a root word that means to to kneel down, uh, to bow down, or literally to prostrate oneself in humility and wonder before God. This is what worship is. It isn't a polite sitting in its sense. It isn't It isn't a going through the motions. It is a full opening of oneself in humility and wonder before God. When I was a young man, back in my teenage years, I found this concept of prostrating oneself before God utterly abhorrent to me. I don't know if any of you felt that way. I just, I couldn't imagine a God who would want us to grovel in front of him. I couldn't understand how that could be so. No matter how great he was, I couldn't understand how God would want us to just praise him all the day long. I I, I knew people in my life who were constantly needing this kind of reassurance. We've known them, haven't we? And it was abhorrent to me to imagine God as someone so insecure that he needed me to be worshiping and praising him all the time. Years later, I had an experience which forever changed my thinking on this particular subject. I went out on a blind date, the third blind date of a particular week. The old ladies in my church felt very sorry for me, and they were helping me socially wasn't taking, and then I went out on that third one that particular week, and I met this woman, Amy. Oh, I was dead set against marriage. I couldn't imagine it. I gathered it was a motion I was supposed to go through, but there was nothing in me that was really compelled to do this, and then I met her, and everything began to change. I found myself wanting to open myself up. I found myself desiring, in a sense, to bow down, to kneel, to take out my hands and put them in hers and say, will you you spend the rest of your life with me? March 20th, I can't imagine ever being married. August the 2nd, I'm engaged to be married. I'm, I'm married by the end of the year. It's just... And now I go around at this season of my life just occupied with thinking, how do I bring her pleasure? How do I make her smile? How do I live my life and make choices and arrange things in such a way that bring her joy? How can I do more of that? I want to sing her praises to everybody I meet. I want to tell the people around me all about her. I want to give my life to her marveling, wondering at the amazing grace that someone so beautiful, so good should want to be in companionship with somebody like me. On a vastly larger scale, this is what worship is like. This is what worship at its best sense is. It's a wondrous love affair. It is an experience of falling in rapturous love with God. Thomas Carlyle once said that the basis of worship is wonder. The basis of all worship is this wondrous awareness of 
God. To worship God is to give practical and personal expression to the wonder that fills us up when we see who God really is and how he has really loved us. When you catch a glimpse of the beauty of his character, you don't have to be forced to sing out in adoration. (laughs) You catch a, a glimpse of how awesome God is or of how amazing is the love that led him to come to earth and stretch out his arms on the cross on our behalf, you don't have to be prompted to sing in adoration. I see it. I sometimes see it. A rapturous look on the faces of you when you're singing. I see it a lot at, at the 830 service where they actually raise their hands in a sense of wonder before this amazing God. They don't have to be forced. They'd have to be actually stopped from doing it. Sometimes it's this way for us. We just want to wonder and give glory to him as we see him. Or when you see the contrast between the holiness of God, his purity, and your own, you don't have to be forced to confess your sins. They're before you. You know the contrast. You see it. It's the most natural thing in the world to say, oh, God, I am so sorry. I don't want it to be this way. Will you forgive me? Help me. Help me start again. Or when you think of all of the blessings that God has showered upon you. That you're an American, that you're in reasonably decent health, that that you ate last night, that you're going to probably eat again today. All of the common graces, when you take in the wonder of the privileges and gifts of life, you reflect upon the splendor of all that God has done in his creation It's not such a chore to offer God our thanksgivings or to use our resources as stewards, is it? We want to. We increasingly want to. And when you consider the genius of his thoughts, when you realize that he is the great designer of all things, when you understand that he is the most brilliant consciousness In all of existence, when you take in even a little bit of that reality, you become eager to hear his word, what he might say to life. And when you know something, you catch a glimpse of something of his heartbeat towards the issues and the people of our world, it is just a natural response to begin to pray, to want to be used in addressing those needs. Worship has its roots in this opening up of self in wonder to who God is. It is the overflow, the opening of our life. It needs to be said, however, that this particular kind of intimacy is not immediately appealing to everybody. God tries to come close to us to show us himself so that we'll respond in this way, that we'll grow in this love relationship. And some of us know we're not so comfortable with this kind of intimacy. When Jesus tries to establish this kind of close connection with the woman at the well, for example, in this story today, she wants none of it at first. And there's a great irony here, right? She has lots of needs. She has lots of needs, and this is the ultimate need meter standing in front of her, and her response is to push him away. When Jesus attempts to call her into a conversation by asking her for a drink, 
She immediately pushes him back by quoting the Jewish ritual law that prohibited Jews from sharing a cup with a Samaritan or a man from speaking to a woman in public and especially a rabbi to a sinful woman in public. And by the way, that was obvious. The only reason that any woman would ever be at the well at noon, the heat of the day, was because she could not go with the other women when they went in the morning and the afternoon. It was obvious this was a woman of ill repute that was standing there. Jesus would know it, and she pushes him away, saying, you know we shouldn't be in contact with one another. When Christ goes on to say that if she will only ask him, he will give her life-giving water. She ignores his obvious offer for a spiritual renewal and asks him to explain instead how he thinks he's greater than Jacob and how he would ever get such water. He doesn't even have a bucket. She's dodging the intimacy he's offering her. When Jesus calls her to confess to him her troubled private life, again, she diverts his inquiry. By praising him as a prophet, he names her problem. She's had five husbands. The guy she's with right now isn't her husband. She's living this life of desperately trying to fill up this deep thirst within with everything but what will satisfy it. And Jesus is trying to meet the particular need. And she dodges it by saying, oh, you must be a prophet. Let's not talk about the issues. Let's talk about the fact that you're a prophet. And then she raises this ancient debate, the old theological debate of whether God preferred to be worshipped over on Mount Gerritsim where the Samaritans did it or over there in Mount Jerusalem where the Jews did it. And finally, when Jesus still refuses to be diverted from his quest, every time she pushes him back, he steps forward. He steps closer. He closes the distance. And when she still refuses to accept the invitation, she piously cites her hope. Well, at least when the Messiah comes someday, all the thorny questions will be answered. To which Jesus replies, perhaps in exasperation, maybe in amusement, certainly in love. I who speak to you am he. In other words, all of the rituals, all of the theologizing, all of the cultural norms and structures of life, ultimately, ultimately, these things are so much less important than than your encounter with me, Jesus is saying. With me. I don't know why the Samaritan woman responded as she did to Jesus. Maybe she was too tender and ashamed about who she was to risk sharing herself, her deepest longings and hurts with him. I don't know. Maybe she was just too tough and proud, having been a survivor on her own for so long, to yield control of the conversation to this very challenging man. What I do know is that just as some of us run from intimacy in relationships with other people, and you know we do. We've been talking about that over the last several weeks. 
We run from intimacy with other people. But it's not just with people we do this. It is also with God we do this. He makes an invitation. We step back. We run from this intimacy that could be our salvation, even if it means using apparent religiosity, theologizing, do's and don'ts as a means of keeping him at our arm's length. We mouth the words of the readings and the hymns sometimes. We bow our heads as if to pray. We occasionally tune in when the scriptures are being read or the sermons being given. But what we do so often is not worship, at least not of the soul-quenching kind. It's going through the motions, but avoiding the intimacy. Jesus says that the true worshipers that God seeks will worship the Father in spirit, he says. All of his questions to the woman at the well, all of his questions to you and to me, are aimed at digging down to the level of the spirit. And as you may recall from a year ago when we talked about this, in the Bible, the word spirit is the same, means the same thing as the heart. All of what Jesus is doing is trying to get to the heart of this woman and to the heart of you and me. The living water I want to give you is my spirit, my heart, Jesus is saying, which will become in you a spring bubbling up to life eternal. But my spirit will only adhere to your spirit. You're only going to get my heart if you open up your heart to me. Offer me a cup of empty liturgy, and it's going to come back empty. Offer me a cup of prayer or music or even silence in which your spirit, the ultimate intimate longings of your heart, are really there, the leanings of your deep self really opened up to me, then I will fill your cup to overflow flowing with myself is his promise give me your spirit your heart and I'll give you mine Jesus says that the real worshipers the ones to whom God pours out the living waters will be those who worship him not simply in spirit but also in truth That's what Jesus tells us. Do you know what the Greek word for truth is? It is the word aletheia. It is a combination of two Greek words, which together mean without a veil. Without a veil. The reason why Christians focus on Jesus so much The reasons why, if you talk to somebody who's a long-time churchgoer, sooner or later they're going to get to the topic of Jesus, is because we believe that to, to meet Jesus was to encounter the magnificent, wondrous, holy God without the veil, with the veil taken away, the separating veil taken away. The scriptures teach that at the precise moment when Jesus' work of redemption upon the cross was completed, a great tear, a huge tear occurred in the gigantic curtain, the great veil that hung in the um, 
temple of Jerusalem to separate the holy from the holy place, the place where the pure, clean God was understood to dwell from the common place where those of us who live the down and dirty life dwell. He took back the veil at that moment when he finished his work upon the cross so that it was now possible for the holy God and sinful people to be in intimate contact with each other and to reunite in the relationship. At that incredible moment, God declared that no longer is worship to be confined to a controllable, limited, devotional act that we do on Sundays when we're in a church building. Now worship is, in fact, our way of life. Everywhere we go, we will be in this intimate, wondrous connection with him. And when we come together in a place like this, it is simply to train us, prepare us for that glorious and ongoing encounter. If attending worship on Sunday does not change the way you live and I live on Monday, then chances are when we were here, it wasn't worship. It was going through the motions. When truly received, the living water of God overflows our cup. It runs downhill. It runs out of this room into the weekday world. That's what it will do if we're worshiping. If we've genuinely raised our voices in adoration and praise to God today, we are going to find it almost helplessly our pattern to notice his blessings and his grace and goodness on Tuesday still. If we've truly confessed our sins to God when we're here in this place, we're going to be quicker to admit and turn from our selfish acts or our harsh words when they slip out on Wednesday. If we've made the effort to really hear God's word to us, to to take it into us when we're here in this place, we're going to find ourselves much better attuned to the promptings of his voice as they speak to us this Thursday in our encounters with people. And if we have actually prayed for others here today, we shall find ourselves more sensitive to the concerns of people when we meet them on Friday. And if we've offered ourselves with integrity to God here, if the, what we did with that offering plate was something that came from the center of our being to him, well then, it will not be difficult at all to still be thinking of using our resources for his sake all the way till next Saturday. Worship. Worship simply prepares us for the life of a relationship with him for which we were born. I'm told that there is a fountain in the center of a village in Germany which bears engraved in its front facade those words, come and be refreshed. Upon approaching that particular fountain, however, many, many thirsty travelers have found themselves somewhat disappointed and confused because you get, you see the invitation, you get there, it's hot, and you look into the basin of the, of the fountain and it's bone dry. And what is more, there is absolutely no indication of a, of a switch or a lever or a pedal or a button or anything you could do that might 
put water in that basin. In fact, there's not even any evidence of a hole out of which the water could possibly come. Most people walk away confused, disappointed, but every now and again, seized by some strange impulse, someone will linger by the fountain. They will take their hands, placing them on the side of that basin, and bowing down, almost kneeling down, they will tip over as if to drink from the thin air. And then, and only then, does the shifting weight of their body trip the mechanism, the secret mechanism that sends the coldest, cleanest, clearest water you've ever tasted cascading into the basin from hidden apertures beneath the basin's rim. Beloved of the Lord, as you come to his table today, hear this invitation issued personally, intimately to you. Come, says Jesus, and be refreshed. If you truly want that refreshment, remember the words the psalmist once spoke. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. For Jesus has the food and the drink that we most need in this life. And he has promised that whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give you will become inside of you a spring of water welling up to a whole new quality and quantity of life, eternal life. But the only way, the only way to receive that water is by prostrating yourself, bending yourself, opening yourself, worshiping him. in spirit and in truth. Please pray with me. Our gracious God, we worship you. We worship you this morning not because your ego demands it, but because it is the only response, the only natural response of our hearts to the sheer wonder of your character and love. Enable us to worship you in spirit, dear God, humbly pouring into every aspect of everything we do in your service, the deepest longings of our soul. Help us to worship you in truth, O Lord, that by the faithful obedience of our lives, we might see the flow of grace that will pour out of this room and refresh everything we do tomorrow and in the days to come. Bless our efforts, we pray, with the living water of your power and presence, dear Christ. For in thy sparkling name we pray. Amen.